night and day. Come on. You are the one, Dash. Only you come up beneath the moon, come and under the sun, semicolon. Whether near to me or far, dot, 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 it's no matter, comma, darling, comma, where you are, Dash, I think, comma. Night and day, period. New paragraph, night and day, exclamation point. All right, I, <laughs> I think we play Alan Sherman songs more than all the radio stations in America put together. We have played Alan Sherman songs twice this week, uh, but it's essential. Uh, it, we don't do it out of perversity; we do it out of necessity. But we're going to talk to. I'm, can you hear the excitement in my voice? If you were transcribing my voice right now, you would have to use exclamation points in order to convey how excited I really am right now uh, because, in fact, we are doing uh, a show on exclamation points or possibly exclamation marks. Uh, and right away, we're, we're plunging into another set of transatlantic distinctions uh, with uh, the person who inspired this whole topic. We discovered there was a book out uh, by Florence Hazrat. Uh, it's a literary who is a literary researcher. Uh, she is the author of An Admirable Point, A Brief History of the Exclamation Mark, which will be published here in the U.S. on March 28th. You can order it now at your favorite independent bookstore, and you won't miss out. Uh, so first of all, Florence Hasrat, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me. So it's, it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, and I just want to say about this book that, you know, it's not a long book. It's 160-something pages. But every time I thought of something that maybe you weren't going to think of, it was there in the book, <laughs> to an almost frustrating <laughs> degree. So it's it's very complete and wonderful and whimsical. Um, maybe we should begin with the fact that, um, you know, there are so many things that set the exclamation mark. I think we can say mark. That's that's your native tongue. I see no reason to subject you to, to Americanizations. Um, so many things that set it apart from other punctuation marks, including... The existence, existence, the existence of a man named Jacopo Alpoleo de Bressalia. I don't know. I tried to remember, yeah. memorize his name. I didn't do very well. A poet, though, in the mid-14th century. And he he's sort of the Christ of the exclamation mark, followed 50 years later by a Paul, who would eventually kind of disseminate this word, make sure that people knew what was being talked about. But tell us that story. Yes, exactly. So Alpoleo de Urbisalia was a scholar and a poet and a lawyer, and he wrote a treatise, The Art of Punctuating, because he was just a little bit annoyed at how people were punctuating, but also especially pronouncing sentences. And uh, at the time, the full stop was around the period, the comma, the colon, the question mark. The question mark was the first mark to introduce a kind of tonation, intonation, something about the voice, apart from the syntax and the grammar. And he was just annoyed that he felt people were reading uh, sentences that were, that were exclamations or expressed some kind of admiration and some feeling as if they were just statements or questions. And so, lo and behold, he just said, we need a new sign and we need something to mark this emotion. And he, he suggested to have a period that's sort of at the bottom of the line and an apostrophe that's dangling from the top of the line. But curiously, he didn't actually make that shape. So as you said, it, it took another 50 years and another punctuation fan to produce the first form, the first shape of this mark. 
His name is Coluccio Salutati, which is sort of funny all by itself that his name is Salutati, and he comes up with the, uh, and he actually introduces this. And he does it in, I believe, a Latin text, right? He's writing in Latin. That's right. He's writing in Latin, and he he has this kind of mock humorous debate with a lawyer, uh, uh, excuse me, with a with a um, doctor friend, and they are arguing over whether medicine or law is the better discipline. And of course, passions are running high, and he needs to express some kind of emotion in the text, and so he creates this mark. And um, the the great thing and the interesting thing about it is that the manuscript that we have of this text is actually copied out by his secretary but then he goes back and he squeezes in these <laughs> punctuation marks so he he has the exclamation mark but he also invents the first parentheses so he really took care and um and was sort of worrying about how his text is going to be read and he wanted to make sure that the passion he was feeling was inscribed in the text although you know it's sort of interesting too because i, I think cicero would not have approved all right uh that i i think original latin writers and speakers would say ah that's what we get the hortatory subjunctive for we've got all kinds of exclamatory words what do you guys need a punctuation mark for and that attitude has persisted um the attitude that I've now just perhaps falsely imputed to Cicero has persisted through centuries. What do you need this thing for uh, is a pretty common response, right? Yes, absolutely. And actually, I think it makes sense to go back to antiquity because um, back then, uh, scholars or rhetoricians would say, well, we don't really need any of this punctuation stuff that is that actually has had been around because that's for learners of Latin. So they looked down on on that. They they thought you have to write in a way and be educated that you don't need punctuation at all in order to make sense of the sentence. And this actually, this attitude persisted right up until the 20th century where you have grammarians or um, language guides that say if you need punctuation in order for it to make sense or express what you want to do, go back and write it again. But actually, um, punctuation, especially in the Renaissance, there was a bit of a boom of punctuation. So we have the semicolon, the exclamation mark, parentheses, dashes, dot, 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 and, a, and just a, a kind of um, settling of punctuation into the, the functions that we use them for today. All of that happens within a very short amount of time, just two, three hundred years. And that was probably because people just wanted to make it easier for us to read. And um, they were very concerned about how the page looks. And if we think about it, really, punctuation makes things easier. And that speeds up all sorts of things that's necessary for politics, diplomacy, trade, uh, scholarship, you know, reading religious texts. When we read something better and faster, um, it kind of um, speeds up all kinds of communication. Right. And, you know, in, in the Renaissance, too, they some of the writers are already devi- – maybe maybe they're not deviating from a norm. Maybe the norm hasn't been established. But we sometimes think, anyway, of an exclamation point or exclam- exclamation mark as something at the end of a sentence, something that's not a period or a question mark, but it's another way to end a sentence. But, I mean, one of the passages you cite uh, uh, is the Ben Jonson poem about Shakespeare that's in a Shakespeare folio. And he's just, you know, he's just throwing those exclamation points in wherever he feels like it, too. They're just between words sometimes. Yes, absolutely. I think um, people, especially in the Renaissance, were much more um, experimental and explorative with language. And 
for them, the most important thing was to persuade and to convince. And so if that means that they massage grammar rules that were not really um, settled at the time anyway, then they will do that. So for them, the key was persuasion and being effective rhetoricians. And they were very happy to use whatever was at their disposal to do that. You know, let's go back to our friend Jacopo for just a second here, because as you no doubt know, there is sort of a competing theory that I've read elsewhere, which is that this, the exclamation mark was really kind of a slip of the pen, that it was medieval scribes trying to write low, I think L-O at the end of a line, and then they drip their ice cream cone onto the manuscript and it smudges or whatever, and it suddenly this mark evolves. I, I, I sense you're having no truck with that idea. Uh, yes, there's the idea around that it means a kind of IO, like hooray, the mm. Latin for so hooray or like wow, mm. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And then they, they write it on top of each other and it sort of then becomes the shape. Um, that's very well possible. I haven't come across that in my research, and um, for sure there would needs to be um, would need to be much more research done in the archives, actually, and also in order to track quite exactly um those marks move from manuscript to manuscript and then from manuscript to print. Um, but I haven't been able to do that yet. But that is a, a theory that is around. And I don't think that's um, uh, that that contradicts the, the Alpoleo choice because perhaps he's seen it somewhere yeah. and then he took it over. Yeah, we should do this, um, what that guy did. All right. So, you know, obviously the, the great ecstatic writers uh, are, are drawn to it. Uh, you deal with Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, there's Walt Whitman, Jack Kerouac here in America. Uh, and in that tradition, one of the great ecstatic writers works alongside me here at the radio station. She does most of her ecstatic writing on social media. Her name is Kyone Wolf. Uh, she's the host of a show called Audacious. I don't know why it's not Audacious exclamation mark, but it isn't. Uh, but she uses them a lot. Uh, and she recorded this for you to think about. Florence, here's A1 cap. Exclamation points are not a single angel singing. They are choirs of angels. They are not a single rose. They are a bouquet of your most favorite, most pungent flowers. They are not a solitary lamp. They are the blast of stadium lights when the rock band hits the chorus. Exclamation points are trumpets of exaltation for a job well done, a prayer fully answered, a yes when a no was imminent, that dizzying feeling of relief when what you feel is in alignment with all that you already are. You want to put one exclamation point at the end of all of that? You can. You don't even have to ever use just one, my friend. After all, F. Scott Fitzgerald said... An exclamation point is like laughing at your own joke. Well, what would it feel like to laugh at your own joke? To rejoice in the flow of your own excitement? To share the gift of your happiness so that it may be even the slightest balm on the wound of someone who is currently suffering? Not to put too fine an exclamation point on it, but when that best news comes... When the surprise gift is revealed. When your heart lifts and your breath is caught and your eyes become wet and wide, I hope that you feel the exclamation points in your soul as the choirs, the bouquets, the brilliant, blinding, supernova, bright lights that they are, that you are. 
And I'll give you all my exclamation points for that. All right. So, Florence, just go ahead and respond to that, unless your breath is also taken away by it. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm beaming all over. It's beautiful. I really love the unapologetic defense of the exclamation mark, which is also what I'm trying to do with the book, to just give people permission to express themselves and um, to be as loud and as friendly and as uh, kind of there as ever they like. There's a journalist called Philip Cowell who said um, dismissively that the exclamation mark is the selfie of grammar. And from what I hear of the poem, the the answer back is, so what, right? <laughs> and there have actually been studies that um, online people come across as more friendly when they use exclamation marks. And um, the online space is the, the sort of ultimately disembodied space. We don't have any paper, we don't have any handwriting, no stamps. There's nothing from the other person, from the writer that we receive the message from. So it's really crucial to put a little bit of us in there into that message. And um, the exclamation mark is, is actually able to trans translate that presence. Right. So, uh, you know, there's when we're writing. Well, let me just back up here and say, uh, and let's go back into the history for just a moment. Um, uh, I'm just also wondering typographically how big a problem is. You know, not kind of around the time that we get exclamation points, we start thinking about movable type uh, as well. Um, what you know, how long was it before there was some kind of standardized way to make an exclamation mark, um, either using movable type or all the way through the age of typewriters? I, I think you said that some typewriters did not have exclamation marks on, uh, as keys uh, up until the 1970s. That's right, exactly. Um, and the typewriter thing, for example, is very much connected to the context of the typewriter because it came out of a commercial background. And so there will be a dollar sign, for example, but there won't be a dedicated key for the exclamation mark because when you just have a communication about some trade business, you don't really need to ex exclaim. So actually, um, typewriter, when you write on a typewriter until then, you would actually have to do this period backspace uh, um, apostrophe sign as you know they did in the uh, back in the days in the, in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. Um, but in terms of uh, thinking about the printing press, um, it took a couple of decades probably for um, the exclamation mark to really arrive or maybe even a hundred years. Again, that depends on the printer. If the printer was um, occupied with plays, for example, where there's a lot of exclaiming and a lot of emotion going on or a poem, it would be more likely that they would have an exclamation mark key. Um, and if it was a, a printer who, who would print perhaps biblical things or scientific treatises, that would probably be less likely. And um, however, again, it's perfectly possible that um, the typesetters would just help themselves by reusing some other kind of marks. And again, to put this period and the apostrophe on top of that. All right. So from from that to typewriters to the Digiverse and, and social media, um, Kat, we're going to play A3 here. We're going to hear James Corden uh, talking with his sidekick, Ian Carmel, uh, about how the word good is no longer good enough in our age uh, of exclamation points in social media. A3. Good isn't enough anymore, is no, it? No, it's not. Good is actually... It's bit yeah. <laughs> You know what this is a spillover from? Go on. Having to use exclamation points in your emails and text messages. Yes. How are you doing? Good. Period. Ooh. Oh, no. What's wrong? 
Don't, yeah, nothing, period. <laughs> Whereas, how, how are you doing? Good. Heart eyes emoji. Yeah. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you, uh, in, in your book, uh, quote uh, the, uh, the professor uh, Naomi Barron, and it's really kind of before social media even starts, uh, but in the early part of the century, she says that um, printed speech will increasingly come to mirror spoken word, that we will uh, increasingly, even as the writer Tom Wolfe did in his day, try to create the sound of spoken word in, in the way that we write or type it. Um, and, and that seems to have come true. Um, tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about that. Yes, it seems to have come true because we have this instant or near instant texting, right? It just goes back and forth, WhatsApp or social media texting, messaging. And it seems like we're talking real time. Whereas actually, I think that's a little bit of an illusion because it is still mediated through writing and through typing. Um, and there is a little bit of a time lag. And some people actually, when they do like a T-smash, you know, just any any letters in order to signal spontaneousness, they will actually go back and change their T-smash and make it a different kind of T-smash that for some subjective reason or other looks nicer to them. So I think there is actually a lot of mediation going on. And, and um, while we have this kind of impression that this is real-time talking. This is actually something that, for example, linguist David Crystal calls digi-talk. So it's sort of a mixture between those two things. And um, the sketch mentioned emojis, and emojis are actually something super visual. So I think there's actually uh, more stuff going on than just kind of the internet moving us towards speech. You know, another part of this, and, and I hesitate to bring this up because it, it it could be too small a sample size, but reading your book, I was thinking about the fact that in the world of politics, it does seem like the exclamation mark is favored, favored a little bit more by conservatives than by liberals. We, of course, had President Trump, who grotesquely overused them in his tweets with you know, three, four, five ex- exclamation points. Uh, we, you uh, document the, the ill-starred campaign of Jeb Bush, where the, uh, the logo was Jeb exclamation point, which didn't fit him at all, but also Rishi Sunak uh, in, in England. And I'm, I'm thinking about that, too. There's sort of, sort of, and you also deal with the fact that, that you know, in one of his famous visual presentations, Obama notably uses a, a period. Um, and I'm thinking there's something Dionysian about exclamation points and Apollonian about periods, maybe kind of a sense of if you're trying to appeal to somebody's gut instincts um, and, and maybe bypass reason, an exclamation point's going to work better than a period. React to that. I think that's uh, absolutely true. And it is quite striking. Also in France, for example, in the elections last year, there was a far right candidate who used the exclamation mark in his um, in his logo as well. There's something punchy about this shape. And there are actually cognitive studies that have put people into MRI scanners and have found out that our um, parts of our prefrontal cortex are being activated that are telling us to get panicky. So it's not the panicky stage yet, but it's the stage before that where we need to decide whether we want to get panicky or not. Um, And uh, I think this is really expertly used by um, pundits and by politicians who want to appeal to this physical reaction. 
Um, you know, as you point out, um, the exclamation mark has had lots of other names for it. Uh, the screamer, the slammer, the bang, the gasper. There's also um, a certain dog's appendage uh, that has sometimes been used uh, to describe the exclamation point. Um, but you also point out that the, there's a thing called the interrobang, which, you know, I mean, we might be heading for a much more visually symbolic language structure uh, in the next 50 to 75 years anyway, given what emojis are and, and what other things might happen. But in terms of staying power, the interrobang is kind of an, uh, an interesting example and one that is tempting to use. Explain what it is and, and how it does get used. Yes, the interrobang is kind of a superimposition of the exclamation mark and the question mark used for rhetorical questions or for something like, can you believe that in Tarobang? Or wow, this is crazy. Uh, or, or, or something where you want to express disbelief or some horror or some rhetorical question. And it comes from the 1960s where an advertising agent, Martin Spector, was looking for a mark that, according to him, expresses the, the madness of his times. And of course, every generation will say, oh my God, our time is crazy. We need something <laughs> new to express that in a very reduced way. Um, the Tarobang didn't really catch on. And um, I mean, it's still sort of lurking around in some uh, fonts on on a computer, but we don't really, you know, we have to make an effort in order to use it. Or if, if you want to use it on Twitter or online, you ha have to copy paste one from somewhere else and use it. Um, so that makes me think that it actually takes a long time for things to uh, become part of the repertoire that we daily use and that we use with ease. And um, the interrobang is not the only uh, punctuation sign or, or something that's being proposed for capturing a new feeling or capturing a certain kind of um, um, expression in writing in a very sort of reduced way. There's plenty of uh, suggestions going around and there have always been for, for even in the Renaissance, people were thinking about a sign to mark irony or another uh, sign to, to mark um, or to flag up uh, rhetorical questions, but they have never really been very successful. So even for emojis, I'm not entirely sure whether they will stick around um, in the future, depending on how the technology changes as well. All right. We have to end this segment. I'm going to end it quickly by saying I heard from uh, a friend, Bruce Putterman, today, who runs Putterman Productions. Uh, he talked about a client he had years ago who was um, against the exclamation point and, and was very vocal about that to a point that became kind of grating in a way. And he said there was a delicious item, uh, irony when she later became chief marketing officer at Yahoo. Yahoo obviously has an exclamation point right at the end of the name there. So you may try to avoid them, but they may come and find you. Uh, and with any luck, when they find you, you will have in your hand a copy of the book, An Admirable Point, A Brief History of the Exclamation Mark by Florence Hazrat. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And we'll take a little break and we'll come right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So, so far we've been talking about writers, but I thought, well, actually, Betsy Kaplan thought it would be good to talk to one specific writer and maybe one specific writer who's wrestled with this question of the exclamation point. And we could absolutely, I don't know how we could have found anybody more appropriate uh, than Lan Samantha Chang, uh, whose most recent novel is The Family Chow. Uh, her novel Hunger will be reissued in the 25th anniversary edition this summer. She's the director of the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. And in fact, The Family Chow represented uh, some of her struggle with the whole question of the exclamation point. So, Lan Samantha Cheng, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. So, you've also written an essay about this, about this whole question. And maybe we'll start there, that one of the premises of your essay is that literary fashion kind of goes in waves, goes in generations. There might be sort of a 15-year curl to a wave, uh, and that that there was one of those waves that was very discouraging of the exclamation point. And that sort of was where your paddleboard happened to be located at a certain time. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So when I was in graduate school, which was in the early 90s, I was in a lot of classrooms where exclamation points were vehemently, if possible, discouraged. We were following the rules of Strunk and White, and Strunk and White felt um, that exclamation marks should only be for use after true exclamations or commands. And the idea behind that is that our words should mean so much in and of themselves that punctuation kind of fell away from the meaning. And I also think, though, now looking back from 2023, that there was a literary sort of style that would discourage what I would call now, for the lack of a better word, loudness. Well, first of all, let's go back to Strunk and White and Elements of Style for a second. What they should have said was exclamations, commands, and things said by spiders and pigs and rats. Because Charlotte's <laughs> Web is full of exclamation points. The strunk, the white in Strunk and White is E.B. White. <laughs> so apparently animals can use them anytime they want to. Uh, that's that's not- true. The geese, the goose... Some of the animals exclaim. Oh, they, um, they also have strong opinions. Yeah, I mean, look, Tumbleton says, good things come to those who find it and shove it in their mouth. Exclamation point. That's not even that big of an exclamation point. Uh, we all know. Uh, don't we know that Templeton was considered crude? Yeah. No, Templeton right. was not in good taste, so to speak. He's not a behavior model. True. Oh, no. 
In so, fact, E.B. White hated rats. <laughs> but it's not just the rat. Lots of animals use exclamation points in that book. So sure, it's kind okay. of like physician sure. heal thyself or something. So I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I, I was in graduate school and I was told by, in particular, one of my professors who had very strong opinions um, not to use them. And his he told all of us not to use them. He told his own son, you should only use two exclamation points in your entire life. When you're married and when you die, apparently, um, yeah. or maybe the first. We should say this is the legendary Frank Conroy, uh, who was the director yes. of the Iowa. Iowa I mean, I, I was I'm a huge like fan you. of Frank's. Yeah, <laughs> but well, I remember this. I remember it. It got so I got steeped in it coming up as a writer, and it just so happened that my first my first works were about I don't know Asian American families undergoing difficult assimilation processes to American culture. There was a lot of sort of lack of communication between uh, parents and children, parents comfortable in one language, children comfortable in another. And the language was sort of a metaphor for, for this inability to talk and to talk about the past, particularly for some of these families. And this understated uh, quality you know, writing without exclamation points actually married, if you'll excuse the expression, quite well with the um, the kind of pain that these uh, people, these immigrants were going through. So uh, they were suffering, but they weren't talking about it. Right. And would it be fair to say, I mean, what I'm, I'll tell you what I'm hearing here. What I'm hearing here, too, is when you're an immigrant, when the, the language is not your native language um, and you're part of a, an enclave or a subculture, one of the things you're trying to do is read the cues of mainstream culture, read the social cues, not make blunders that are made simply because you don't necessarily know the entire terrain. And that seems to me is traveling on a parallel track to you at the Iowa Writers Workshop and anywhere else being told that it's a blunder, it's a miscue, it's it's an overreach to pepper your work with exclamation points. It seems like there's maybe a little bit of, of joining between those two things. Sure, I can see that. I mean, there were very, there were very few Asian American writers in in school when I was there, and and very few publishing at the time. And and also, I think again, like that, learning to write and read. We read a lot of Raymond Carver. Uh, learning to write and read in that sort of understated fashion made sense. But I do remember early as early as that first collection, finding a story in which I couldn't. Um, couldn't really describe the actual fight that was taking place within the family between a father and a daughter, because there was no way to describe how over the top the like volume was because I grew up in a family that was, you know, sure we had our issues and some of the issues, some of the feelings we felt are in hunger. And it was my goal to try to describe them. And I think I got the worst ones, but some of the most like intense experiences we had at home were quite, loud and as a family we were extremely verbal we were no noisy we laughed a lot you know we screamed a lot at each other and none of that got into my first collection right well first of all raymond carver's a bad place to begin because everybody's depressed and depressed people don't use exclamation points Interesting. uh they don't exclaim so i mean how are you going to maintain the the miasma of depression if you use exclamation points just, that's not going to work so when you think about the act of writing one of the things you can't do, not counting audiobooks, one of the things you can't do is make noise. 
Um, you somehow or other have to you have to convey the loudness, the softness, the level of animation and excitement. You have to use well, Strunk and White and Frank Conroy would like you just to use words to do that. But the truth is, there is a tool. It's right there on your keyboard, that, and there aren't that many tools really. You know, you can't make noise. Uh, you can't draw pictures. Uh, all you can do is use words and punctuation. <laughs> so it would sure. seem sensible for you to do what you did, which was make peace with the exclamation point. I did. It happened just recently, actually, as I was writing. Not rec- I mean, recently in, in your my career. life. In your career, yeah. yeah. I was writing my most recent book, The Family Chow, and I found a voice that was entirely unlike any voice that I'd ever really been taught. And it was it was in present tense. Uh, characters were monologuing. There was, um, it's loud. There were jokes. Um, it was like all the parts of our family life that never got expressed in my earlier work came out in this particular work. I mean, I like to say um, the characters were living lives of noisy desperation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And there, I mean, the other thing that exclamation points are and can be is characterological, right? You've got a character in that book, Leo, and Leo's kind of an exclamation point guy, right? I mean, that, that, that would be a little bit of the rhythm and music of the way that he talked. Even if he's just talking about his French bulldog is he's going to exclaim. Yes, that is exactly the way Leo was. Leo had exclamation points just screaming to be written. So so he, we should say you have like upwards of 400 exclamation points yes. in, in this book. It's kind of you went from being a teetotaler to a massive exclamation, exclamation point drunk overnight. And, yeah. and so how did that feel? I mean, did you feel kind of like on a precipice or did you feel dirty or did you feel, I mean, using all those exclamation points? How did, or did you just feel really liberated? Finally, I can scream. Yeah, it felt great. Yeah, I, I think I'd been given permission by other writers. Like in, in, instead of Raymond Carver, I was reading Dostoevsky, and the uh, the family Chow is in conversation with the brothers Karamazov, which has like over two thousand exclamation points. <laughs> That's a lot. Well, I you know I was heavily influenced by the kind of the American ecstatics. If you took uh, exclamation points away huh. from Walt, Whit- Walt Whitman, he wouldn't know what to do. You can see the same thing about Emily Dickinson, but uh, yeah. but, but Whitman, you know, exclamation points per words ratio would be, be very high, and that rolls into Kerouac, and, and you know, uh, there are just a lot of writers who are trying to convey excitement, somebody's excitement, their own, their characters. And and that's why you sort of think, yeah, Dostoevsky, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, these are all pretty good writers. I mean, th- that's what tells you it's a fashion of the moment to say don't use exclamation yes. points, right? Yes. Um, and now I think the fashion is trending toward two and three and eight <laughs> exclamation points. Because of phones. That's why, yes. right? I mean, we're writing yes. the way we text. Yes. So what happened when you handed in the manuscript? I mean, they got they got editors. Oh. How were they with those, all those exclamations? Well, I will say first I went through it myself. At one point I thought, oh, you should search exclamation points, and I found 437. So I took out like 18 of them or something. And then I handed it in, and I had a pretty serious copy editor. Um, I could sense, I could just sense coming from the page, looking at the remarks, that this person was somewhat old school, And I later looked them up and found out that they had edited writers like Dennis Johnson. Um, So I could, I could feel that energy coming off. I could tell it was from a different period of my life. And yet they did not contest any of the exclamation points. So I felt good about it 
Yeah, and and also you are there presiding over a cradle of uh, or an incubation system uh, of young writers. So I don't know. Does what's the vibe of the Iowa Writers Workshop oh, these days? I mean, that's is everybody so interesting? Yeah. I mean, there are still people who write quiet, understated work, and there are also people who write really noisy work. I think what has happened is we've opened up what people are reading. So one of the first things I did actually when I came to the program was run these non-credit voluntary uh, book discussion groups about the Brothers Karamazov, because I liked the book so much. I wanted to talk about it with smart people and we would meet and just discuss the book for hours. I, I don't think there's any one style here anymore. We're going to get in a lot of trouble with Betsy Kaplan if we talk much longer. But I do want to say one thing and just have you react to it. <laughs> First of all, I should say, after you, the next segment after you is going to be with one of my editors who doesn't like exclamation points. Like, he really doesn't oh. like exclamation points. But first of all, I'm very fond of him, and I just thought it was kind of funny. But also, you know, it's like haiku, right? Anything that restricts you also can potentially liberate you. So. I sort of feel that way, too. I mean, I wouldn't want to have to go for 10 years without being able to use exclamation points. But, you know, as an exercise, like when John, my editor, said he didn't like him, I thought, well, that's a challenge. How am I going to convey certain things without using exclamation points? And like over the short term, I don't know what you think about this. I think, okay, that's fine. Sure, I understand. I mean, I went through it myself. My issue right now is that I feel that in order to write about the culture, the family culture, and by extension, change uh, the kind of literature that I write, um, change the writing of Asian Americans, I want to make sure that the families aren't just quiet, long-suffering, stereotypical immigrant families anymore. And so I, at this moment, would not want to be told to try to write without exclamation points. No, well, you you've earned you've earned <laughs> the right to that attitude, right? You you've come by that attitude very honestly. Uh, you know, you've you've already yeah, been through decades. your you've, yeah you've been through your winter of discontent, uh, yeah. and and now it's a glorious spring full of exclamation points. <laughs> So I just have to also say that my editor, John, is listening to the conversation, I'm sure, and going, what is he even talking about? He uses them all the time just to piss me off. Uh, and that could be a little <laughs> bit of a dynamic, too. So um, well, can't wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah. So, Lan, Samantha, Chang, uh, you are glorious to talk to. You. I feel very good about uh, the future of writing in America if you are the director of the University of the Iowa Writers Workshop. I don't, cool. I don't feel very good about your chance of avoiding frostbite in that particular location, uh, but you know it was ever thus. So the author, uh, most recently, of The Family Chow, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It was fun. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. 
Time to issue some exclamation of thanks. Uh, so the technical producer of today's show, as usual, is Cat exclamation point, pastor, exclamation point. Uh, and the producer of this show is Betsy Kaplan, exclamation point. Betsy Kaplan was, uh, for many years, the senior producer uh, of the Colin McEnroe show. And one day she just snapped. Uh, but we, we are always thrilled to have her back uh, to do a wonderful show like this one. And now there were two things. <laughs> when this idea was first proposed by Betsy Kaplan, I had two immediate thoughts. One of them was Kyle and Will has to do an essay. Uh, and the other one is I said, well, you've got to have this guy, John Brunig, on. Uh, he's my editor at Hearst. Right now I'm on leave of absence from Hearst while I'm in rehab, but uh, he's my editor at Hearst. He's also editorial page editor with Hearst Connecticut Media Group, writes a weekly column for Hearst called Look at It This Way. And one of the first things that John ever told me was that he <laughs> He didn't like exclamation points, uh, and that has turned into a little uh, lively back and forth between us uh, over time. So, John, this is so exciting to have you on my radio show, and as I think you've pointed out, we basically never talk, right? We just write back and forth. It's a pleasure to meet you. The, um, You know, I told my wife I thought about, you know, just trying to hire Stephen Wright to come in and fill in for me. and. <laughs> Just do the whole segment like Eeyore, you right. know, just erase all the exclamation points and see if you even notice. So, so well, I, I I might not have. But so just <laughs> say a little bit about this. You and I both, I think, grew up as kids reading comic books where there's lots of exclamation points. And sometimes like all there is, you know, Roy Lichtenstein and his art borrowed on this, too. Sometimes they're just the word wham or something, which is also the name <laughs> of a band with an exclamation point <laughs> at the end of it. But that didn't endear exclamation points to you in a more global sense. No, I'm a yeah real child of, I was like three years old watching Batman when it first came out. And uh, as you said, everything, you know, fill in the blank, right? Zowie, Zap, Shazam, you know, they all had the exclamation point. But they were all appropriately used, um, right? Their exclamations. What I always noticed reading comics um I, I had to go back and revisit this. Um, if you're reading comics in the 50s or 60s, every single sentence any character says ends with an exclamation point. And probably in the early 70s, it, you know, I'm a kid. It, I noticed there was a writer with DC Comics and his byline was Elliot S. exclamation point. I don't know how you pronounce his name, Magan McGinn. Um, and it, it turned out, I mean, even as a kid, I had to track this down. It turned out that he was so used to writing exclamation points in his copy that he once signed his name and accidentally used the exclamation point on his middle initial. And his editor said, oh, that's going to stay. <laughs> so uh, that was his, and I think remains his uh, his byline. Um, and just serendipitously, I was somewhere yesterday and a comic book was next to me in a random place. And I picked it up just to see what's happening in 2023. And it has shifted a little. It's sort of halfway there, but uh, they're kind of they're kind of all over the place. There's still plenty of 
hey, what's going on? Exclamation point, question mark, <laughs> kind, of, kind of things. So. so, you know, apropos of that guy, Elliot, for a long time here in Connecticut, I think, I don't know if he lived here in Connecticut or he just came here, but there was a guy who was an expert in the Beatles and he organized Beatles conventions and other related stuff. And his name was Charles, Charles Ro- Rosenay, exclamation point, yes. exclamation point, exclamation point. And that was his legal name, too. If I, if I wrote about him and then some Brunig <laughs> like editor said, well, well what yeah. are these exclamation points doing here? I said, no, that is his legal name. He changed it. So uh, just just to defeat people like you, probably. Um, so uh, let me try to describe what I think your attitude is towards exclamation marks, and then you can say what it, what it is. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that you see exclamation points as something a writer does to try to call attention uh, to something, to try to get a reaction about something that words alone should suffice to do. How close am I to describing your, yeah. your feelings? No, you're, you're very close. The, um, I mean, a lot of my attitude is, is probably shaped by the fact that much of my career was in news writing and then on a copy desk for, you know, front page news, straight news. And then I did that pivot over to opinion writing where there's much more liberal use of exclamation points, but it's basically illegal to use an exclamation point in a news story on uh, on the front page of a newspaper. Um, you know, once I shifted over to opinion and yeah, it's an art. I, I do. I believe it's an art using it appropriately, but probably for everything, you know, everybody has talked about today with the use of Twitter and everybody else and the ease of finding it with your thumbs. Um, I will routinely get op-eds and you encourage this, the average person to write op-eds about issues they care about and they so want to underscore how how much this means to them that they use they bold the word they italicize it they underline it they capitalize it and then once they've gone that far they're not going to give you one they're going to give you four or five exclamation points and um yes i truly sway back to why don't we try writing (laughs) you know instead of just punching me with uh, with bold exclamation points. You know, this is so sick, John. I think right now <laughs> Danny Har may be texting both of us. Um, <laughs> and well, you know, I, you think about this, like there are human beings, there's not many of them, but Robin Williams is the human exclamation point, right? Well, yeah, I, Harry. You, you know who I also think of? By the way, Danny is texting. He's saying, if I say thank you in an email, uh, it, he's saying it's like I said nothing. That I have to say thank you! Exclamation point. So um, <laughs> Dan may be in a, a human exclamation point. He himself, is kind so, of a human yeah. exclamation point. But I also think somebody who may have influenced a lot of this, and I know that you have some thoughts about the way that he used capital letters too. But I sort of came up into newspaper humor writing at roughly the same time as Dave Barry. We were exactly the same, yeah. except he was eighty-seven million times more successful than I was. But he also used exclamation points, and I thought he found an interesting way to use them, which was, I think, ironically or sarcastically. There was a way in which his exclamation point was, somebody else thinks this is exciting, but I don't. What were your What are your feelings about that? It's, it's pretty deft. I mean, that's a real skill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to use that, that, and you can say, it, it, if correctly used, it's an elegant mark, right? And that way, it's the insider joke in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think of you'll probably be able to summon more examples than I can. But over the years, I think of 
it probably started in the 60s, right? When Broadway plays just were all started Oliver and uh, throwing the exclamation point on the end. And Hello, Dolly gets the exclamation point. And I'm like, did we really need to say hello that loudly to Dolly? Um, well, I we think Oklahoma, Oklahoma might have started it. Um, and, Is that right? Well, yeah. yeah, Oklahoma, I think, comes maybe first, and it's actually the first Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, musical. And what's, sure. what's weird about that is, oh, what a beautiful morning, should probably have an exclamation point after oh, and it doesn't in the title. Uh, but yeah. Oklahoma, Oklahoma does have the exclamation point at the end. Um, and, They're just the jazz hands of Marquis, right? Yeah. Broadway Marquis. So, yeah. And I share your sense there. I mean, we talked a little bit with uh, Florence about this, but... You know, if you can't bear the weight, there's nothing worse than an exclamation mark in a place that can't bear the weight. It's like thin ice, you know, and that was certainly the case with Jeb. You know, adding that exclamation point to his logo, it was like it was just enough to make the ice crack right under his feet. Right. He just he did couldn't sustain that. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a big Beatles fan. It comes up a lot. And I always like the idea that. And again, you may think of other examples, but help is your perfect, it's perfectly used exclamation point, right? Off of four letters. And then um, later the Beatles do, uh, is it being for the benefit of Mr. Kite? And they throw an exclamation point on it, even though they, Lennon and McCartney took basically every word from a circus poster and the exclamation mark is not on the poster. But then they write, oh, darling, and have that unique, Oh, gets the exclamation point, but not Darl. So. I, I love how much thought you put into this. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's great to visit with you. I'm coming back, hopefully. I mean, assuming my seat is still warm there and I can sit down in it. Not that I actually have one. Um, but uh, but it's. I want you to know that I haven't used this opportunity, my leave of absence, to go on a bender of exclamation points. You know, I mean, I still feel your presence somewhere in my life. So, so you've you've saved them up is what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> get, get ready for a fuselage. of exclamation points. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and with that in mind, first of all, John Brunig, so great to, to visit with you on the show, editorial page editor with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. Um, and let's, and writes a weekly column called Look at It This Way. Let's see if we can find a song to end with that John would really like. Kat? Help.